we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we have two phenomenal authors on tonight's show to talk about an amazing book that has it. It has a lot that comes in it. Yeah, you've got criminal, uh, criminal smuggler. You've got so many cool things about this. Um, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this book has roots to a plotting moment with uh, the two of you and uh, Larry's son throwing some stuff out, if I remember right. Is, is that correct? It was from, uh, it was from LTUE. John, you because this was actually, the, the panel was John's idea. Yeah. So, yeah, go for it, John. Yeah. So uh, I pitched to them a panel on how to write an action plot. And Larry and I had done these types of interactive audience panels before. And, you know, you always, it always takes a long time if you're just starting from scratch to get the ideas. It's always fun, but this yeah. one was about plotting. And so I thought, well, we've got to come with some of the stuff already developed so that we can start looking at the actual events and how to, how to plot this thing. So I, Larry and I set a date. We went, I went over to his house. We sat down on his couches, talked a little bit. And then I said, okay, let's, let's get going. And, and I, almost immediately, Larry says, I don't, I don't know what prompted this. Now his son, Joe, who was, what was he? 11 at the time, Larry, or 10? Yeah, 11. Oh, he was pretty young. He was pretty young. So he's over there by the stairs, kind of listening in, right? You can just see his head poking up above the stairs. And Larry, and Larry says, hey, Joe, what's cool? And Joe immediately pops up and says, giant robots, bandits, and murderers. And we looked at each other, and we were like, well, dang, that is cool. So that was the seed. And we just went from there. And, you know, 30... 35, 40 minutes later, Larry and I had the basic idea for this story fleshed out. And so we took it to the convention. And I don't know how many people were in the audience. There were a lot of people in the audience. It was about, it was about 200, if I remember right. It was one yeah. of the big groups. Yeah, yeah. and was I was actually... I we was had a ball team. with it. It was just absolutely uh, a great time. But then we got done with that. You know, we looked at each other and we were like, man, this would actually make a really good story sometime. But... <laughs> You know, Larry, we were both new in our in writing careers, and there was a lot of stuff to do. And so we said, you know, maybe sometime. And so fast forward a number of years, and then this is where Larry's part kicks in. Well, yeah, I had uh, I had just had some successful collaborations with other authors, and my career is doing really well. And uh, my publisher came to me and said, hey, is there any other collaborations that you want to do? And the very first thing I thought, well, there's two things I pitched to her. Uh, uh, that I immediately thought of was when I had done this panel with John Brown, where we went through and came up with this really fun story on the fly. Uh, and I was like, okay, there's this one. And then there's this other one I'm doing with Steve Diamond that I'm currently working on right now. And uh, I told this to uh, Tony Weisskopf and she thought it was a great idea. John, John was in, <laughs> John was all in on it. And uh, so we wrote uh, Gunrunner. We didn't really have a working title at the beginning. Gunrunner, was kind of just like our short title as we were, we were calling it something and the name stuck. Um, but it was a fun project. And uh, so it's the first thing that I've had a full novel that's sci-fi. All my other books are uh, primarily fantasy, urban fantasy action. This one was uh, definitely sci-fi. And uh, 
Wow. I mean, it came out really good and we hit a lot of fun stuff with it. Got to uh, cover a lot of ground, but it all came back to those same basic ideas we got from a little kid of what he thought was awesome. Uh, So giant robots and bandits and murderers and they're all robbing each other and, you know, running big, powerful weapon systems to uh, planets and colonies that aren't supposed to have them. And uh, we had big space battles and monsters and, you know, murder planet. (laughs) It was great. Big, you know, uh, space station that's basically, you know, Mogadishu of the stars. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was a it was a great project. I really thoroughly enjoyed working with John on this. Yeah, good project. And at the end of the book, uh, luckily, you know, as soon as we, as soon as Joe popped up and gave his ideas, he immediately went to drawing some of these mech robots that, um, you know, that were in his imagination. And luckily um, for the presentation, I had Larry send me some screenshots of those. And we got one of them in the back of the hardcover, man. Nice. So it's kind of author's note to Joe, and you can see one of the mech suits back there that he had drawn yeah, during he professional, that. He got a professional illustrator's credit uh, from work he did when he was like 11. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, the reviews on this book are overwhelmingly positive. Um, oh, yeah. I was looking into all of it beforehand. I haven't had the pleasure to be able to read it yet, um, but it is one that is on the way to me. And uh, I, just overwhelmingly, people seem to really resound with this. And, and from what it sounds like, the core of it is because you started with the audience request in mind of these are the critical pieces. What was the process for the two of you to then build off of those critical pieces without losing the core of what it was? A lot of times, you know, as we're trying to develop ideas, we tend to shed layers of skin, right? <laughs> and leave things behind. But from everything that you've said, it feels like it's really stuck to some of that core stuff. So what, what did that process end up looking like for you two? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. So first, what we did is after, so after we did this the little process we talked about with the con and stuff, um, when we got back together a couple of years later, we sat down and we did a much more detailed outline. And uh, uh, because I was, I was, we've been, John and I have worked about the same amount of time as somebody's got to be like the senior guy on the project. And that was me just because it's at my regular publishing house. And so uh, what we did is we sat down, we had a big brainstorming session. We went and ate lunch at Taggart's, a great restaurant in Northern Utah. Uh, and we came up with a lot more detailed stuff than what we had before, but we did, we, we kept those core uh, plot points, those core plot elements. We really didn't change a whole lot from what we had originally. We added to it. And we fluffed it up quite a bit, but the actual basic plot outline we started with didn't change a whole lot. And we both had some really cool science fiction ideas that we were able to incorporate in this. Uh, some of the biggest things we had uh, in the outlining process uh, before I before I did the big detail outline was um, we had to work out like basically how different technologies would work, uh, what were going to be the rules of the universe. We emailed back and forth a lot, uh, and then John actually it was. Uh, he did the the rough draft so he took the outline and then john did the very first writing pass and during that process he would run into something like oh hey we haven't talked about how this works yet and uh he would email me and be like okay how does this work and we would just kind of bounce ideas back and forth off each other until we would nail down cool stuff or basically our rule of thumb was whatever's the coolest way to do it or whatever offered us the most 
fun storytelling opportunities. That's what we took. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, here are all the cool ideas we can think of. How many of these can we stuff into this story and make it work? I mean, not just to stuff it in, to stuff it in, but, but to make it work and make it satisfactory. Um, and, and that was one of the joys of working with Larry is because, it, and it was just always what, what's cool, what can amp it up? I remember giving it back to Larry and he was just like, I want more. We need, to, we need to ratchet this scene up even more. Let's do something bigger, you know? So it was just fun that way. Absolutely I need more cowbell. That That's kind of how it was, right? It was very cowbell. Yeah, <laughs> I had a fever. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that, that brings me to something that I always get curious about when we're talking about creative collaborations. In your opinion, and this question goes to each of you individually, in your opinion, what was your greatest collaborative success moment and what was your greatest collaborative conflict during the creation of this book? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, okay. I've collaborated probably more than most authors. Cause I think, I, I think I have, uh, let's see. Um, so Mike Cooper yeah. and Sarah Hoyt, John Ringo, Steve Diamond, uh, John, so I think I've collaborated. Oh, Jason Cordova now. So I got six six different collaborative novel projects, and some of those are multiple books. Wasn't that um, one with Sarah? Yeah, I said Sarah, didn't I? I did maybe, I do Sarah? Maybe I missed it. Missed that one. Yeah, because I, oh, I know that was the last uh, uh, Monster Hunter book. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I start, so six or seven, uh, <laughs> and of those, they're all kind of different, and you all work together in different ways. Honestly, John was like super easy to work with. Uh, <laughs> John was kind of a blast. He was uh, he he was up towards the top as far as easy to work with. Uh, I don't think either one of us had a whole ton of ego invested in that because we this wasn't like a lot of times a collaboration is definitely one author's idea, and then you take that idea and you team up. In this case, because of how it came about, where we came up with the idea together um, and brainstormed together, it was kind of a mutual thing. There were, there were little things where like, I just thought we should do it one way. He thought should do it the other way. Mostly on those, we just would hash it out. And then kind of like, neither one of us had a whole bunch of like, you know, pride involved. So it was, we just kind of like picked the best one. John, can you think of anything we fought over? Well, we didn't, I don't think we fought over anything. There was this character, you know, when you're oh, doing something Bruce. like this. Oh, I forgot about Bruce. <laughs> Dude, you forgot about Bruce, man. Yeah, so, Bruce, I'm sorry. Hey, there was Bruce. There <laughs> There, so when you do something like this, you know, you, you do a rough draft and that's the first thing that you get out there. And sometimes the rough draft is just like, oh man, I barely have to tweak this thing at all. And sometimes the rough draft has stuff in it that you're like, well, yeah, it's just not working. So I wrote in this character, Bruce, who is this, uh, what would you call it? A personal service robot that kilt wearing, kilt wearing giant robot <laughs> Anyway, he was, it was this, he was the shirtless brawny Scotsman. Shirtless brawny <laughs> Scotsman gigolo robot. So anyway, um, he just <laughs> took it a little too far one way in, in a certain direction of humor. And when we got done, you know, Larry's like, ah, and you know, kudos to Larry, tried to make him work, tried to figure out a way to make him work. But ultimately just the tone of the book, it wasn't the right tone. And so Bruce got yanked out, you know, but as far as I went, there was no fight over it because 
it's like, well, that's just the first draft, right? It's the first draft. You throw some things out and sometimes you go through multiple drafts in order to get what you need, you know? So, but yeah. Bruce, Bruce will come back sometime. Sounds if I ever like do a science fiction novel again, I'm telling Bruce you. Bruce wasn't a bad character. Bruce, Bruce is a fun back. character. Bruce yeah. just, tonality didn't fit in that part of the book. Because we had a, as far as the beginning, we had a lot of stuff going on. And he was kind of a diversion, you know, so he's, he was cool. And he, and he, I think in a different situation, we could totally, you know, put Bruce in something, but yeah, it was just one of those, which is funny though. Cause, uh, uh, the biggest change we had to make that actually didn't come from me or John. It actually came during the official edit process. So once we got done with our manuscript and we sent it into Tony Weisskopf, she edited it. And then she came back with the biggest change, which she had us add uh, the prologue. Because we had a whole bunch of, I think that was probably the biggest structural change we had to make. Uh, well, and and on that one, it was, uh, and she was right. And that's the thing where once you get, you got to check your ego. Because, you know, I could be all, don't you, you know, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm, you know, I'm too big to edit. Yeah, whatever. Any writer who says that's full of crap, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, me and John are closer to something than Tony is. And she's, she comes at it from a fresh perspective. And she looked at it and she goes, okay you guys refer a lot to these events in the past and they're very pivotal to three of the major characters. Why don't you just go ahead and show those? And normally she's very anti-prologue because uh, they're not really necessary. But in this case, she thought it really sets the tone for these three characters is where they come from. Yeah. Uh, and so we added that. That was probably the biggest, biggest difference we had. And it wasn't from me or John. It was from our editor. Nice. And, and and if I'm not mistaken, and this is obviously not a spoiler because it's the prologue, it's the first thing you read, but yeah. we're talking about the uh, conflict on Gloss, is that correct? Yeah, that opening scene uh, is Captain Holloway's perspective. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which I loved, by the way. I loved that. Like, that was an excellent hook. It was action from, from the go. And, uh, but it was not that you know, it's become so commonplace in cinema for movies to intentionally have like breakneck uh, starting speeds and jump cuts and shaky cams and all of this sort of MTV edit to uh, to keep people interested because everyone is now so hard to keep engrossed. They need to have like immediate endorphin kicks or they just don't have any patience. And But your prologue is not that. Your prologue is meaningfully intense and i really dug that about the start of this book yeah and i had actually just when we had to go back and add that we, me and john started brainstorming it out but i had just watched a thing about the fall of saigon and, mm. so I kind of mind. and so that was definitely uh the big influence for that scene because it's the fall of a planet and it's like the very end that these guys have got their butts kicked and they're basically everybody who's trying to get off this rock that can and it was a rough scene yeah but uh yeah, no, I don't give people the wrong idea. This is a very fun book, but man, it gets dark at times. There's a lot of dark stuff in this book, but overall, uh, well, because he, because my son, like I said, he requested bandits and murderers, so by golly, we got them. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that we've talked about a few times. I don't know if any of it's actually made it into an episode or if it's all just been banter between, but we've talked before about how you know good horror has moments of levity and good comedy has moments of darkness. You know, uh, it cannot be all one way or all the other if you really want something structurally good. Um, and that, and, that, but, and the same thing is true about heroes and villains too, right? Like they, mm -hmm. you you have to have 
villains uh, villains and heroes each have to have their humanity and it doesn't matter if they're humans or not they have to have that identifiable vulnerability that identifiable uh emotionality to them otherwise they just become white hat black hat nonsense yeah so that kind of leads into a, a obvious question from here we'd love to hear from the two of you how would you describe the universe that you have built the setting that you want your reader to fall into and fall in love with hmm well and john well you know this takes place in basically two 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 solar systems right three i guess but i think the bulk of the action is on uh, on this planet called Swindle and in the orbital around Swindle. And Swindle uh, is actually its nickname. Its first name was Lush. <laughs> and the way that we envisioned that the, um, the planets we've colonized, you know, the one thing that we figured would change is that, that would allow all of this. Back in the beginning, Larry and I were trying to figure out, well, how are we going to do interspace travel? Is it going to be faster than light? Uh, is it going to be generational ships? Is it what? What is it going to be? And we finally landed on well. <clears throat> we like this gate technology, and it's going to be a one-way gate, and you get sent out into you know millions of miles away, and it's not a pinpoint. You come out at a very specific location. <clears throat> Excuse me. You come out in this huge area, and then. <clears throat> Larry, you're going to have to take it for a second. All right, John needs to drink the water. <laughs> uh, Holy cow. What's up about this? <laughs> I'm dropping off. So, <clears throat> so, where was I? So you have this gate technology, and you have these, to fund that, you have these exploration companies go out, and they, uh, they get remuneration for doing the exploration. Well, they went out to this planet, and it's a hellhole. I mean, it, it looks lush, but it want, everything there wants to kill you. Even the air wants to kill you. So they put out all these ads, and you have this generational ship, or this not generational ship, but this big ship go out there with all these people who had, who had spent their life savings. It was a one-way trip for them, basically. And they get there, and it's like, crap. This, is, this planet is uninhabitable. Well, now what happens, right? And part of what Larry had that I thought was cool was this whole concept of a space orbital that had been cobbled together that was kind of like Mogadishu. So Larry, why don't you talk about well, that? So, so the colonists went there and it was a few hundred thousand people and the plan was to settle this beautiful planet only it turned out to be filled with evil, everything, murderous plant life and plants and animals and everything was to kill you. And they can't settle. So they can't actually go to the surface. So they take the colony ship and they put it in orbit and they basically just start adding on to it. Um, so over, over generations, this colony ship has grown into this gigantic, supermassive space station that's orbiting this crap sack planet because um, they're kind of stuck. Well, what happens, though, is they discover uh, on the surface of the planet extremely valuable uh, material. I won't get too much into that, you know, for spoilers, whatnot. But this is extremely valuable and it's organic, so they can't just, you know bomb the planet and mine it uh they have to go down there and harvest it and so all of a sudden the space station which they named big Ta big town 
big town becomes kind of a boom town. Um, it becomes kind of this wild west area where people stage off of this massive orbital to do expeditions down to the surface of the planet. Uh, they gather up the CX, uh, the, the material, as fast as they can before the native wildlife kills them all. And then they get back to the orbital so they can ship it out of the, out of the system. It's uh, super valuable. It's kind of like this crazy gold rush kind of scenario. What happens on Big Town, though, is it's originally controlled by different factions. There's a civil war. Basically, it's more of a gang war. Uh, and, and they just everything falls apart. And this one guy, uh, just by the strength of his personality, comes in and makes himself the warlord uh, who brings law and order back to Big Town. And when we get there, it, this basically, uh, this, this guy, the warlord, it rules Big Town with an iron fist. Uh, and a big part of the story is uh, involves this guy. He's He's our main antagonist and kind of a super fun uh, bad guy. Really, this guy is like a combination of every tin pot third world dictator in history, but he's actually very, very, very smart. Uh, he's, a, he's a sharp dude. And uh, yeah, so when we, when we first meet our characters, uh, uh, they're smuggling goods to this guy and in uh, and, and his crap sack orbital. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the big... Speaking of the world, is just a little diversion. It's like, so this is the sci-fi setting that John and I came up with, but it was cool enough that since then, I've actually done uh, two short, two different short stories in different anthologies that are set in the same universe with the same rules, hmm. only a completely different uh, group of people, completely different planets. But that way I could still use the same background rules and how all this technology works. So it's actually a really versatile, cool setting. Because we have about... At the time, about 30 planets that mankind has colonized. So, so it sounds yeah. like maybe uh, Bruce needs his own no- novella. Look, I'm not yeah. going to I'm not going to lie, dude. Like the moment. OK, so I've had characters like Bruce, at least in terms of like their absolutely spontaneous genesis and simultaneous genius come up in like role playing games. And the best part about those characters is that you can put them in the background. You can put them in every story in every world and someone somewhere will notice who that character is. You don't have to give them a lot of airtime. You can just briefly describe them in the background or they say they make some signature noise and then they go off and do their own. I expect Bruce to be in every friggin' book that both of you write from this point forward. It is a mandate. I expect Bruce will be there. Oh, I have no doubt Bruce will return. I, I <laughs> that was that was one where it's like poor poor Brucey. <laughs> kind of like Milo. You know, Milo is almost in every Monster Hunter book. Yeah. Oh hey, yeah. Once you red beard, that's all you need to know. It's Milo. Yeah. Uh, popular. Now, one thing that's really cool, uh, especially with the audio book, you got Oliver Wyman to come back in and do this one, and he's done a fantastic job with the Monster Hunter books. So, was that something that you got you? facilitator or was that something that like tony and uh bane put together for you uh actually so the 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 people who picked the narrator for all the audiobooks is audible.com uh it's it's the audible originals production team and uh they've teamed me up with oliver wyman for a whole bunch of projects and uh he he's awesome and uh uh we've done really well together on other series you know like monster hunter he's done a bunch of other things like uh uh he's actually Buzz the Honey Nut Oat Bee. Um, so if you ever see a commercial for Honey, honey Nut Oats yeah. the cereal, he's, uh, he's all the women, it's Buzz. What? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. 
he's on a bunch of cartoons. He's on a bunch of anime. He does voiceover work for different things. Uh, he's amazing. Uh, great vocal actor. Uh, but no, we, we were lucky. And uh, Steve Feldberg at Audible is the guy that actually charged us. And Steve hooked us up with Oliver again. Uh, he always just a, he's a pro, man. He's awesome to work with. Great narrator. Absolutely love working with that guy. Yeah, I, is, I, I, I love his work. Is Oliver going to be doing the the short that you did for? Yeah, so I did. Uh, uh, I, I have a short coming out, or it's a novella coming out on Audible uh, in August, and it's called um, Lost Planet Homicide. And so it's a gritty cop show in space, <laughs> but it's set in the Gunrunner universe. And in one part in Gunrunner, we, we were talking about the, how the gate technology works. That basically, if something goes wrong while a ship is transiting the gate, it could be flung to who knows where across the vastness of space and never be seen again and have no way to get home. Yeah. And we just had some passing line about how that happens once in a great while. Uh, but we didn't really extrapolate on it in the story anymore. Just as something everybody worries about. But the odds of it happening are like winning the lottery, only in a bad way. Only I wrote about a colony ship. So I wrote the story about a colony ship where that did happen. And instead of going to a wonderful planet where they're supposed to colonize, they get sent, they, they wind up in the middle of space 10 years from the nearest system. And when they get to that system, uh, the only planet there is basically just a giant acid bath uh, with a couple with a handful of mountain peaks sitting above it. And they have to, uh, you know, build a civilization there. And I write a, you know, police detective story there, a uh, murder mm -hmm. mystery. Uh, but yeah, no, we got Ollie for that too. I, I love Ollie. Uh, he is, he is one of the coolest narrators uh, in, in the business. And I, I, I've been very blessed to have him as, as my guy on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So you've mentioned, uh, both of you have mentioned, you know, various connections and within the real world, professionals who you enjoy working with and things like that. Um, something that I am very curious about is, are there uh, people that ended up making it into gun runners? Well, a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot of people. Actually, about forty. <laughs> and this was this was awesome because Larry has this red shirt charity list that he can explain here. But the yeah. cool thing about it is this: you get all of these names. And all of these little details that they give about themselves that, you know, it's just fodder for your mind. You, I probably, there's no way I would have thought up all these, these details that people gave us. And so, I mean, there's one dude that is on his charity list named Jeet Prunkard. And he's like this, he's like this minor villain, dude. He's like this scabby, awful bad guy. I'm, and I'm sorry, Jeet, if you're listening to this, but man, your name was perfect. He has this big bulldog this overweight bulldog <laughs> and it was like oh man he's perfect for that role right so there were just so many of those i mean talk to more about your charity your, well, your charity i love I, I love doing charity stuff i like to i like to you know I, i'm lucky enough to be in a position where I, i've got a lot of really good awesome loyal you know following uh and fans and uh so every now and then i try to do a charity thing where i'll do uh I'll auction off spaces for uh, uh red shirts basically you send me, you pay money to a charity, then you give me your name and a handful of personal details, and I try to get as many of those as I can into a book. Usually you're a minor character. You might, you know, you might just be the garbage man and show up one sentence and then never be seen again. Some of them have actually turned into major characters. Uh, the last red shirt list, we actually uh, paid for a guy's spinal surgery. 
Uh, so this, uh, the a guy had spinal bifida and he had to get a whole bunch of surgeries and he had a really major spinal surgery. Uh, and there was no way he could pay for it. So I, for this, cause it's very expensive. So we actually offered auctioned off a couple hundred red shirts, uh, <laughs> to pay for the surgery. And I have been working for, I want to say about five years now, four years off of the same red shirt list. And it's gradually shrinking. I think I'm down to about our, my last 20, 25 people. Um, hardest part of spreading this out is there are so many guys named Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put seven dudes named Mark in one book. So I think I'm just now I'm spreading them out as much as I can. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so once those red shirts are all used up, I'll pick another you know good cause and we'll we'll pay for that too. But uh, I might have to raise the price because getting through two hundred red shirts has taken me quite a few years. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a well, ton. It was fun because there's a lot of characters. That, in fact, most of the characters, who other than the very very main characters, I think most of the secondary characters in the tertiary yeah. book are red shirts, charity red. Yeah. Nice. Well, hey, once you, once that list starts to run dry and you decide you need to do another event, let us know so that we can get the word out. I'm sure that oh, some number of listeners out there would love to be a part of that. Heck yeah! We in the, the I mean the very first one we did we uh, we paid for a kid's kidney dialysis until he could get a transplant. You know, nice. uh, so my my fans are awesome. My fans are super cool. So we we get to do stuff like that once in a while, and it's really a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately, like, like during this, I've written three Son of the Black Sword novels, which are basically set in a, a magical India. And so on my 200 red shirt names, I had like one name I could use yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that actually fit the setting, you know? Mm -hmm. So we've talked about cultural influences. We've talked about real people influencing characters within the book. What are some of the technological influences that inspired some oh. of the setting and some of the things that you brought through oh there's some cool stuff on this okay so one fun thing about being an author is that you get to uh you get invited to a lot of cool stuff um and i got to be a guest at the neuro the big uh I'm trying to remember the actual name of it the big neuroscience conference uh and trade show in san diego and uh, i was a guest to dr rob hampson and uh, we went out there and, and, you know, all these PhDs doing high-end brain technology. Well, one of our characters in the book, it's a great character. And I think uh, John actually is who thought of her originally. Uh, her name is Jane. Uh, her, co her call sign is Spectre. And she's the ship's, uh, I think it's information warfare officer is what they call her. But basically she's uh, all around hacker, messes with your brain. Uh, and so I was actually able to take a whole bunch of stuff from the neuroscience people uh, that's like cutting edge technology right now and then extrapolate it into a sci-fi setting. Uh, like they have a silent communicate, the crew of the ship has a silent communications network where basically what it is is um, they have a, uh, an implant that shows basically a keyboard, but each key inside their eye and each key is flashing a slightly different uh, uh, rate. And so if you focus on one of those, your brain will actually match that frequency. An electrode can pick up that frequency, translate that into a letter and transmit it. This is a real thing that exists right now. Uh, they, they just plug a bunch of electrodes to your head and you watch a screen. Uh, and so we were able to integrate that in the book. And it's funny because then when Rob or Dr. You know, Dr. Hans was reading the book, <laughs> he got to the part where they're communicating with Jane's secret net 
and she and Rob like, oh, I remember. Yeah, I, I know where you got that from. <laughs> and we had another scene where they're doing uh, basically emergency battlefield brain surgery, uh, where they go into basically like a three uh, uh, a VR setting where like you're steering a nanite through the dendrites of a human brain and it feels like you're climbing trees. That's a real thing too. Um, uh, that's, that's cutting edge stuff right now. I got to do that. That was kind of fun. Uh, and so we were able to stick a lot of stuff in there uh, like that. Uh, that's kind of, when you're writing sci-fi, that, that's half the fun is taking yeah. current stuff that's in its fledgling, uh, fledgling stages and kind of extrapolating out some of the cool stuff you can do from there. One of the things that we wanted to avoid, uh, there was the, you know, if we put it too far into the future, one of the things that kind of, I don't, what do I want, how do I want to say this? I guess it just bugs me about some of these science fiction shows that you go to, and maybe you can't avoid it, right? But they're so far into the future. They have such incredible technology. I mean, they can do such amazing things. And yet they're doing these things that you're looking at it and you're like, wait a minute. You, you can basically raise somebody by the dead from the dead, but, but you're doing this right. You're fighting in B two bombers. What are you doing, <laughs> right? So um, one of the things that we did is we said we're going to limit how far out into the future that we go. So the one big thing that changed was they discovered this gate technology, and we imagine sometime in the next fifty or sixty, seventy years or something like that, and developed it in the hopes that we could rein in some of that because too far out unless you unless you get into some dystopian thing i mean the technology is going to right now if you look at how things are growing and the exponential growth of technology the world is going to be a completely different place by 2040 by 2050 because you have all of these i mean not only is the computing accelerating not only is all of the different areas accelerating but they're converging into totally new technologies mm -hmm. and so i think for me to make it a little bit more believable we wanted to rein that in just a little bit not go so far out star wars you know yeah. i love star wars not saying i don't love stars but not so far out where where uh, i would personally as an author run into problems and it would be difficult for me to not just do a bunch of hand waving and make it into a fantasy story again you know? Yeah, it's the old, the old adage, you know, the old quote about sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic. Yeah. Uh, so most of the stuff we did, we, we kept it where it has some basis and stuff that we do now, only maybe tweaked out a little bit. And we did leave it a little vague on exactly how long it has been. Uh, and we also left it a little vague, too, that we also had some planets were far more technologically advanced than others. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but like because like Jane. Uh, her backstory, she originates, she's a runaway from one of those worlds where uh, genetic tampering on human beings is just commonplace. And it's just, it's just doing business, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, basically something like, like Mengele level, horrible human experimentation is just a normal thing there. Uh, and so we can a little bit, we, we, we have, a, I have a couple of Easter eggs in there about uh, uh, quantum nanomaterial but that's 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 for something else it's just some easter eggs related to some other stuff i write that that it, the occasional uh, the occasional sharp readers like oh wait a minute you know that that's just for my own benefit though nice 
Very Absolutely cool. I like stuff like that. It, it you know, it kind of helps tie everything together. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And those little breadcrumbs that are spread out throughout, you know. Yeah, I'm not either confirm or nor deny, but the Son of the Black Sword series might actually be set in the same universe, just like in 2000 years in the future. Nice. Hmm. Nice. Well, I don't want to take too much more time off a topic on this, but I do just want to say thank you for being conscious both of the Tomorrowland problem and technological texturing. Those are two terms that I've talked about with other people as they've tried to bring me their sci-fi stories to fix. And it's like you, just exactly what you're talking about. If you're gonna be in a soul timeline, right? Meaning, you know, earth future, we you have to be conscious of the fact that the future is constantly shifting. If you're going too linear, too far forward, you're going to end up with weirdness and inconsistencies that date you horribly. Yeah. Yeah. And on the opposite side, the other problem that you're talking about is if I only advance some technologies, but don't think about their implications in regards to everything else, then you end up with these, you know, gigantic mountains and huge craters of disparities in things that should not be that far apart from each other. So yeah, it's, thank you. How good we are. Uh, how it's, it's like this is a constant challenge of sci-fi writers and like i said i'm primarily a fantasy guy because i could just wave my hand and say wizard did it um but what gets you is uh no matter how smart you are or how clever you are there's something you can't foresee and it's always making it's like a running joke among sci-fi writers it's like damn scientists making my life so difficult as you know they'll talk about something in a book and then uh, you know 500 years in the future and then every one of their fans will send them an article about how somebody's working on that right now, you know? And so yeah, stuff is crazy and you can't really predict what's going to happen. But you take your best shot and you just kind of go logical from there. And of course, if we watch any sci-fi project we watch now from the 1970s and 1980s feels hopelessly dated. Uh, I mean, we just passed, we just passed the year of Blade Runner. Yep. That's right. <laughs> I was also thinking of, I, as Elton was speaking, I was going to uh, uh, snidely throw in, yeah, Space 1999. Yes. You know, it's, there's a show that like, if you want a prime lesson in like ruining future predictions or just like not getting the future right at all, that is the show to look at. It's definitely the Tomorrowland problem and all that stuff. It's, it's hideous, and I love everything about it. <laughs> it was an awesome series back in the back when it came out, though, wasn't it? It was something special for sure. And then that 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 uniqueness, that beauty of its sci-fi at the time, did not it 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 very at like a dog's rate aged fast, unfortunately. But it was. It was still, you know, it, it's a great example of how to make a really cool show at the time that does not age well and that does a poor job of predicting the actual future. Yeah, but, like God, we actually left a lot of stuff really vague as to what had happened on Earth. We had some vague references to different events, but we didn't extrapolate on it too much. That way we could kind of wave our hands yes. a little bit. Oh, well. You know, there's a catastrophic thing that happened that set us back a little bit in the timeline. <laughs> but and there's a brilliance to that, right? Like this is this is the Hitchcockian approach of like, don't actually show the, the horror, let them feel the horror. They don't have to look at it. And it's the same thing with with um, allowing the reader to fill in the space. We, a, a handful of weeks ago, um, we had the uh, wonderful and amazing uh, um, 
Tracy Hickman on the show. And I asked him point blank how to pronounce some of the names from Dragonlance. <laughs> and he, he said one of the most brilliant things to dodge my question, uh, which was, you know, the, the reader, uh, the, the book itself plays through it, it it's not the same thing as like a movie or a tv show it plays uniquely in the minds and the imagination of every single reader so whatever whoever's reading the book however they say it that's the correct pronunciation that is their interpretation of the world and they are participants in this experience and it was a beautiful answer and i was like that is brilliant that's fantastic so when it's playing in your imagination tracy hickman what do the names sound like? I'm just curious, you know, like I turned it around, but, uh, but, but what you've done there is very, very smart. You allow the reader to participate. You allow the reader to co-create and to be part of that experience. So I think that's very cool. High five. Yeah. So we don't have too much time left, mm -hmm. but there's always a question that Krebs has to ask. So I want to make sure yes. to serve this up to him on a beautiful silver platter. No, we can't go there yet. No, we All can't. the anticipation. Well, building. it's okay because because we got enough time for a lightning round. Can we do a lightning round? Well, before that, before okay. we do that, the big question I want to do, because Larry recently ran a Savage Worlds game. And, you know, we oh, we got to hear about this. Days ago, that's one of my favorite game settings. And this was not a small one. Like The biggest group I've ever ran is 14 people, and he shot past that. Uh, it was 17 and it was after it was at my house and it was after, and I had a, I had a pistol class here at my house for three days in the sun, 25 people shooting guns at my house all day for three days, 20,000 rounds downrange on the third and final day after we were all heat exhausted and brain damaged from about six o'clock to two o'clock in the morning, I ran, <laughs> I got asked to run an RPG for these people and i was like well how many people are going to come who i mean who's nerdy enough to do this and these people are from all over america and uh most of them <laughs> were like i want to play half of them actually were gamers and knew what they're doing and the other half were uh noobs which made it be like oh my gosh what am i gonna do and so i was prepared for up to 25 people i got 17 uh yeah it was absolutely nuts and how I did it. And in fact, Shane Hensley, the guy that runs Savage Worlds, the guy that invented Deadlands, uh, I had to send him pictures of this because he thought it was nuts. Yeah. Um, so what it is, I, uh, I, I picked a setting that they would all know from just brief, uh, just all I had to say was the Mummy and Indiana Jones Cairo 1935 adventure. Nice. Boom, settings done. There's all your world building, right? I, I had 25 pre-generated characters. I broke them into teams. That way I could do team initiative and have everybody roll at the same time. Because if all 17 of them acted, I mean, one fight would take the whole night. We got through like three fights. Sure. Yeah, I divided them into teams. I had a nerd captain who was a number crunching munchkin hardcore RPGer on each team. That way they could answer all the rules questions because I just didn't have time. Yeah. Uh, that was smart. I, I we managed to get through like three major combats. We had all sorts of crazy stuff. We had a boat crash. We had a Zeppelin chase. We, I, I had stuck a dive bombers attack at one point and I had the sound on my phone ready to go that this noise. Uh, camels got shot. There were mummies, traps. Uh, and then there's, and, then, and there were three competing groups of archaeologists trying to get the book of the dead first. So inevitably they started trying to murder each other. Uh, it was awesome. It was kind of a miracle that it worked as good as it did. We played till two o'clock in the morning when uh, one character inevitably killed 
the entire party by by trying to read the Book of the Dead. <laughs> Klaatu, uh, Verata. <laughs> it, was, it was basically that. And then, you know, the Lost City of the Dead was buried beneath the ship. One guy lived. Hamanatra. One character 17 survived. So it wasn't a TPK. It's funny, though, because the one guy that survived was basically the Magi. Oh. All right. So, uh, okay. Well, we've only got a little bit of time left, and there is one question. It's a super important question, but it's one that I, I have the intrinsic need to ask of all of our informed, educated, uh, well-read guests. Are you guys ready? Sure. Awesome. Uh, I will ask the question. John, I will ask for your answer first. Larry, you'll be second. Here we go. What is your stance and opinion on the 1983 sci-fi fantasy movie, Kroll? Kroll? Kroll. (laughs) They probably have no clue. Uh, I watched it. I enjoyed it. That's all I can say at this point. Hey, I'll take it. All right. I got this. Yes, you Krull do. It's the one that had the awesome throwing star dagger thing. The glaive, yes. Yes, it had the awesome throwing star dagger thing, which is the only thing I remember for the movie. And there was actually an arcade game of Kroll. <gasps> yes, there was. In the 80s. And I played that because they had it at my local Pizza Hut. <laughs> I've, that I'm is the total. That that makes me so happy. That I'm so thrilled by that. <laughs> Good job, so, Larry. So so then, Larry, did 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 you dig the movie or did you dig the video game? I don't remember much of either. <laughs> Sweet, sounds like a rock and awesome time in the '80s. Actually, so I mean, it was I, like I was like nine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were you were a little bit older than I was at the time, but. I did see the movie in theaters. I did play the Atari game. I've actually still got the Atari game and a working Atari. Um, I I love and adore that film. So sometime we might have to go deeper into this, but I just needed to know where you stood on that movie. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. This was an awesome interview. Thank you for your precious time. Yeah, thank you. It was Great. Are we doing any more lightning questions or is that the only question you're throwing? No, out? we're out of time. So I killed the lightning round, but we asked the most important of questions and that's what matters. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. Well, Thanks, so again, thank you both for coming on the show. Uh, this book is fantastic. I'm actually, you know, I remember being in that uh, LTUE uh, panel and having the mother car uh, plotting process uh, taught to me and I've used it myself and to see this book come to fruition years later um is amazing and you know i know how tall joe is at this point so i don't think he could hide behind the stairs anymore um six foot six jeez yeah and um not only that i don't think he could fit in you know in a, a human skin suit anymore like he could in that firefly game but um, depends on how many humans we're talking about that is true that is true so, uh, folks, go out, pick this book up. It's good. It's a great book. If you pick it up in audiobook, uh, Oliver does a great job, uh, as always, with Larry's books. Um, and, you know, who knows? We might be seeing more in this world. Uh, there's been a few hints of some other books, uh, short stories and novellas coming out. And we could probably see more from John and Larry together. And I know Larry has a, a book coming out soon with Steve Diamond, as well as another Monster Hunter book. 
so check those out. John, um, where can they find your books? I know there's, um, there's several books. There's the uh, Dark God series and Bad Penny, and I'm sure there's some other books. Yeah, they're all out on Amazon. Okay. They're all out on Amazon. Most of them are, some of the rest of them I've taken wide, but they're all out there. Okay. And then Larry's books, of course, anywhere books can be found. Um, and so with that said, folks, we are out of time and we'll catch you next time. And Dungeon Crawlers, whether it's in sci-fi fantasy or worlds beyond imagination, tell your story, whatever may come. <laughs> And whether you play the arcade game in the 80s or you read a brand new book on your shiny white Kindle, be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.